0: This Lord's Day and uh, a cold January day, and we continue on in our uh, Corinthian study. We've been in uh, actually a whole section that's stayed in context in chapters 8 through 10, which uh, really emphasizes the Christian liberties. And what do we do with those? And uh, we've seen that we have freedom in Christ. We know that. He, uh, he has set us free. But there are limits. That we also have. How far do we take these liberties that God has given us? We have a law of love, and because of the law of love, we don't want to offend another brother, and we should always be on the lookout for how we might affect somebody else, a believer or non-believer. So we don't want to be stumbling blocks. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, the very last verse, he said uh, he didn't want to be Disqualified. Disqualified from his service in the Lord by something that would be uh, very uh, much like sin or uh, that would stumble people up. And then in chapter 10, he used the example of the Israelites in the wilderness of how they stumbled and disqualified themselves. Disqualified themselves from going into the promised land as really their children did. And then we know that too out of those 2 million plus made it in to that land. There they were out in the desert for 40 years. That's what we looked at last time. And so he doesn't want them uh, to go overboard in their freedom that they acquired from slavery. The the Israelites were in slavery to the Egyptians. They were in bondage and they were then given freedom. So when we're delivered from bondage we are given freedom. Uh, but... As a result of that becoming free, they became involved in lust, in idolatry, sexual immorality, and they complained against the God who delivered them out of the bondage. That's what we saw in 1 Corinthians 10 through uh, 1 verse uh, 13. So it's a lesson. He says, let this be a lesson. They were an example to the Corinthians, and they're an example to who? Us. We look back at the Old Testament and we can say, hey, we have an advantage as we look at what they did. We don't want to be like that. We want to be able to bring honor to God. Take heed lest you fall. Where the Corinthians were in danger of falling or some of them were doing it at this this time, falling into idolatry. Now some of them actually had thought that they were so strong in the faith that it really didn't make any difference. By the way, he's already pointed out that the meat sacrificed to idols, and that's the main issue in this chapter 8 through 10, is meat sacrificed to idols. And I know to all of us today, we're going, well, how does that apply to today? You know, we don't have any meat sacrificed to idols, and we don't have to worry about it at the marketplace. Oh, we have to worry about is E. coli, or something like that. <laughs> but when, when you look at it, you go, oh, uh, I can really see how this does apply to our own lives, and... We have uh, temptations all around us all the time to fall into lust and idolatry and sexual immorality and complaining. So we too can have that. Um, How is it possible to participate in the Lord's Supper, to have communion with God and His people, and then to go out and have communion with the demons? and the people who worship that in idolatry. You cannot do that, can you? You can't participate in that kind of deal. There's a definite difference between between eating meat that's sacrificed to idols and eating that meat at a pagan feast. Paul was saying there's nothing in that meat in itself that is uh, an idol uh, or a worship to idol. But what they had done is... They had thought, or many of them had thought that, hey, I'm strong enough, I can take this. All of my people, my relatives and such are at that feast. They're worshiping there. Uh, I know it doesn't mean anything to me. So therefore, I can partake of that feast and it won't faze me. It won't bother me at all. Well, Paul already said what? Take heed, lest you fall. Well, we're talking about spiritual pride, right? So, let's look back at the Corinthian culture. Imagine the pressure that's on them. In our culture, imagine the pressure that's on us, right? Well, you go back to their culture, they have family, they have friends, they have neighbors, they have people all around that are continuing to go to that great temple there in Corinth and to worship there, and uh, it was involving a moon goddess, and other gods, and they would pour out all their worship there. That was in the Corinthian culture. It just wasn't something on the side. That's what people did. Now all of a sudden, you are not doing that. You're going to church. You're meeting with the people of the church, and yet you have relatives here that say, come on along, you know. And you don't want to offend them, so you go along. And if you don't partake of that feast, then it's going to make you look bad. Have you ever been caught in those situations? Um, I know that I have, um, since Carolyn has many people on her side of the family that uh, are Catholic, there are funerals and there are weddings. And, you know, it's one thing about going to that. But then when they have all the times where they stand, especially at their sacrifice of the Mass, you can no longer participate in that because that's a different entirely different set of circumstances you're not going to go up to that priest and take that host because that's the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ and that's how you receive Christ we can't agree with that at all how can i participate in that so a lot of times while they're standing up and saying their worship uh meditations and communions or whatever they do you're sitting down. It's almost like you're being rebellious. You feel like you're almost um, outside. And you are. You don't feel comfortable when everybody else is doing something. You're doing something different. And it's going to bother people that are standing behind you. Why, why aren't they standing up? And so sometimes either you know you either walk out or you just stay seated. You don't participate in that idolatrous feast. That's pretty close. And a lot of us have been in that situation. I've been in it many times. And... I just follow what Carolyn had always done because she knew what was coming next, and she would say, Stay seated <laughs> or don't don't do whatever they're doing. you know we didn't participate uh, That's just an example, but so they they um, they thought they were really strong, they could take this now that's kind of the actual backdrop and uh, the actual context of this passage that we're in today. now what we're going to do is we're going to feature the lord's Supper. Here in this text, because it is very important. The significance is extremely important. So it cannot be taken lightly. We have much about the Lord's Supper here in chapter 11 or uh, chapter 10, and as we move into the end of chapter 11, it will get into the Lord's Supper there also. So Paul had much to say about this. we don't want to take the Lord's Supper and then mingle something else that does not honor God, uh, that uh, some kind of pagan practice. Uh, the two tables, the table of the demons and the table of the Lord, cannot mingle at all. That's what Paul is, is saying here. So, the passage is not totally about the context of the Lord's Supper, even though it is very much there. And you say, "Well, you just said it's very important." Well, it is, and that's what we're going to do most of today. We're going to look at what the Lord's Supper is and the importance of it in some more depth than what we do when we take the Lord's Supper. I just give a few brief comments compared to what what is here, really. Uh, this text, when you interpret a text, first of all, you want to get what is the meaning behind this text, first of all. We just don't want to pull out of here and make it say something that it's not which we don't want to do. We're not not going to try to do that. But it's directly about pagan feasts and idolatry. That's where we have been dealing and that's where it's still going. So we're dealing with that. But so much is discussed about the Lord's Supper in this chapter and, and coming that we're going to spend our time dealing with that. Because Paul uses this argument, the argument of the Lord's Supper, to support what He's been saying all along in referring uh, to this in, in Christian worship. It was a defining moment to the Corinthians, this Lord's Supper was, because they took it frequently. They took it when they met together. For instance, they would do it actually every Sunday. And it's communion with the Lord and nourishment for their daily lives. So when those early Christians took this, they knew what it meant. And Paul goes through this again as he writes the letter and he's saying really here what is the summation of what what it's about. We are gathering together to worship our Lord and Savior and it has vast implications, all of the worship and part of this worship being communion, Vast implication for our lives today. It's incredible the meaning that is behind this. So let's pick it up now in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14, and we'll go through 22. And in honor of God's Word, would you guys mind standing? And it's uh, good just to get a little stretch there anyway, and we'll honor God and His Word as we read this. Starting in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we though many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? what am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He Father, we thank You for Your Word. And as we enter into it today, may we handle it very carefully. It is Your Word. May we do it that it would honor You. Uh, help give me the strength in bringing it out through my, my voice, my little weak as I am, that we can understand better who You are. In Jesus' name, Amen. 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 you can be seated. And we uh, look at verse 14. And the very first thing that we're looking at is this. Flee from idolatry. I think that's the the whole idea of sin, isn't it? Whenever you have any kind of temptation, don't hang around it. Don't get yourself involved with that. Even in itself, it may not be sin, but to you, it could turn into sin. You know what it does. Everyone knows their own sin. And when you see that, don't hang there. Go the opposite way. Flee, run, whatever it takes... Turn around. Get away from it. You remember Joseph? Whenever he was being tempted? Potiphar's wife, what did he do? He ran. He got out of that situation. Don't go all the way to the edge thinking you're strong. Take heed lest you fall. Uh, So this verse falls right onto the heel of that section that was back in 12, 13, and 14. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Uh, if you look in First John chapter five verse twenty one, we get this same thought. first john five twenty one What does he say right at the end of the, his uh, little epistle there. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. Watch out. And then he says, Amen. That's it. The very last thing he says is almost like, hey, by the way, but it's not just a by the way. It's not a postscript here. This is so important. Keep yourselves from idolatry. And we have discussed in the last few weeks what idolatry is. We won't go into a whole lot what that meaning is, but we know it's anything. Anything. Even the best of things. Anything that takes away our worship of our great God. And, uh, that extends highly out there to many things. And so we gotta be, we have to be very careful. Now, we know that idolatry, where to flee from, it's the most serious of sins. Idolatry is a terrible word. It's awful. It, it pars with hell, blasphemy, perdition. Judas. You know those words? That's what this word does. Idolatry. First two commandments are dealing with focusing on God and not having idols, right? That's how important it is. This is the most heinous of sins. Many forms of idolatry. Libeling the character of God as one. That means it slanders God's character, uh, His nature. Uh, you think of His holiness, His... Uh, being just is being good Uh, another form of idolatry is worshipping the true God in the wrong way if you remember the Israelites they built that idol of theirs and they called it their God it was was still supposed to be Jehovah God but yet they were worshipping in the wrong way even though they are saying this is to the true God it's worshipping any image any image that is worshipped. Having pictures and falling down before them. Having statues falling down before them. There are um, people who actually do that today. Um, We know that Jesus said in John 4 to the woman at the well, worship in spirit and in truth. It's not worshipping things that help you worship God, but it's worshipping God Him alone. Another one is having loyal... Loyalty to another, trying to have God and then also have some other kind of loyalty that you have, um, in um, so many different ways we can commit idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. In in Colossians chapter three, it talks about coveting there, and. Coveting is really easy to do, isn't it? It's wanting something that is not yours. Boy, does that define it really quickly. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and say, I'm okay there, and then it comes to, and covetous, which is idolatry. And that's the one that stung Paul, as we see in the book of Romans, as he confesses that's what what he saw was wrong with his life. It's idolatry. Lust is idolatry. And that's desires. uh, Desires that are inordinate, that are not a desire for God, other things. And so we come back to 1 Corinthians 10. He says, uh, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. I take it that you're wise enough to know this, as if you're wise here. Judge for yourselves what I say. You think about it hey, that's a pretty good place to leave people at. You give them the Scripture and that's what he's going to do here. And he says, judge for yourselves. Here's what I'm saying. You check this out. Uh, I've been using the uh, example of myself. I've been using uh, the example of Israel. Paul says, now I'm going to use the example of the Lord's Supper. How important that was to them. Very key to them. And he says, judge. Uh, the word is uh, dealing with the mind here. Uh, fron-a-mosen. fronamosen. I guess is what it is. Use your own minds. Think about this. You'll figure this out and come to the conclusion of what I'm saying is right. You can see this argument, Paul is saying, that's built up here in your minds. You're able to judge this. Run from idolatry. Here's what I'm telling you that you guys are doing. Some of them were. They were going back to the feast and taking in those feasts. Real idol worship. While they had just come out of a a church worship and been feasting in there on the Lord. Now, we come to verse 16. Now, here's the Lord's table. And here's where we're going to spend most of our time here. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Ooh, what an example He uses. They know how important this is. In Matthew twenty-six, twenty-seven, we get Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper at the Passover. Oh, have we gone through this many times when we have dealt with communion. Um, verse 27. They're sitting at the table. Then He took the cup and gave thanks. He blessed it. Gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. It's My blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you and My Father's kingdom. And verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it. Gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is My body. He gave a blessing over that. He blessed that. And we know that we've done it for many, many years when we have studied the Passover and what the Jews always did when they gave a blessing. And you don't have it in Scripture here. and We don't usually hear it in the church, but we say it every, every time, usually. And the blessing is this, Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who bringeth forth bread from the earth or the fruit from the vine. He gave a blessing. Probably that was the blessing. That's what they always did. Maybe he put some other things in his own word. I don't want to uh, read into that. It does say he gave the blessing. That's probably some of it that he gave there. Anyway, there is a blessing given. He instituted this Lord's Supper. It had never been done before. They have done everything by their tradition that had uh, been written out. They've been doing this for years and years and years. Uh... It had been done, what, uh, 1,400 years before Christ? And so Christ is saying that and all of a sudden, He says something different. Something they never heard before. As He gives the blessing, He's also going to say, Now, take, eat, this is my body. Take, drink, drink this cup. And they're going, what? He's changing gears here. What's He doing? Well, He's giving this Blessing. And of course we've we've taught it many times, but it's interesting as we go through this now, we see the setting and the context of it, and this is how the Lord's table got started. Right there at that Passover. Now, if you look in Acts two forty one, we'll see what the early church did very early on. Right in the very first week they came together and met. And verse forty one it says then those who gladly received His Word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly. So they started meeting together. And what did they meet together about? Well, they got around, heard the Apostles' Doctrine, the teaching. That they used Old Testament and then New Revelation, and fellowship. They gather around Apostles' Doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So that's what they did. They met together. Whenever they met together, and they were meeting together every day, they couldn't wait to hear more about this Jesus Christ and what He really meant in bringing that Old Testament to its perfection in Jesus Christ. And new revelation is coming out. And so they had doctrine. They had fellowship. They had the breaking of bread. They had prayers. What's that sound like to you? That's Worship. We do that here. We, we've, done, we've already been doing it, right? So we're gathering around the, the doctrine of God, the Apostles' doctrine. Of course, the Apostle Paul here we're hearing from, Jesus' teaching, what have you. That's, that's the idea. And so Paul uses an argument for them to flee immorality and lust, and especially idolatry. What's his argument? Well, he's used himself, he's used Israel, Now he uses the Lord's Supper, which is so dear to them, and the meaning of communion here. So the thought is, when a Christian goes to the Lord's table, which should be regular, it should be very vital in his life, it focuses on the issues of a union of the believer with his Lord and the believer with everybody else and we need to be reminded constantly because we forget weekly we forget daily i even forgot within minutes earlier this morning when i started doing a different song than what was supposed to be played i forgot but and so that's why we get reminded so much in scripture we uh we are easy to forget some worse than others like me <laughs> But the thing is, he's emphasizing here that there is something that's very important to them. He says, the cup of blessing or the Eucharist. Ah, oh, Eucharist. How many have heard of that word? We know that some other churches use that word and sometimes, especially, I used to kind of back off from that because it's kind of scary because they're so formatted and perfectly ruled down and it's called, you know, high church and sometimes that can be really good, sometimes it can be not so good because people just do things automatically we don't want to be caught in that ever in anything that we do, even the word of God we do that every week, don't we? But we just don't want to do things automatically we want to make sure that this is clicking with our minds here, the cup of the Eucharist or it means of giving thanks it's a good word. A, a good grace is really the literal meaning of that of the Greek. I like that word, don't you? Good grace. The blessing. So, that's what he does. Uh, it's, it's thanking God for that cup. The cup of blessing. The Lord uh, blessed and set this apart. Now, this was, in the Passover, what was probably called the cup of blessing blessing or also dealing with redemption and when we deal with that we're saying a loadful right there aren't we so he says the cup of blessing you, you know what we're talking about here he says to the people uh, is it not the communion or fellowship or participation or to have in common with. It's that word. Koinonia. How many have heard of that word? Fellowship. Partnership. In union with. Participating with. Now, Paul is reminding them of their unity. Hey, we're all a team here. We're involved in this. And we're involved with God being in here. And we all are. They belong to each other. We participate together. Paul is saying whenever he says this cup of blessing, is it not the communion? Is it not the participation that we all have together? And you're going out there into idol worship also after this or before this? Did you know that you are involved with other worshipers when you come together? Like it or not, (laughs) I think you all like it. But do you know there are a lot of people who really don't need, they think they don't need this coming together that we do on a weekly basis. Did you guys know that? They really don't need it. I have a word for them. They are in sin because they're not recognizing what God has set apart and an opportunity to not only worship Him, but worship with His people, because God has chosen those people to be with you. And so when you fail to connect with that, uh, you're, you're not getting it. You're not getting what God has said. And, and we know that uh, it is very important. We have, uh, we have an absolute obligation to live in unity with other believers. And there's so many people who can stay home on Sundays, maybe turn on the TV and watch a ministry there, or turn on the radio, or uh, pop on the uh, maybe uh, your favorite teacher that you have on the Internet, and they can just stay home and worship God and hear great truths. Well, they might hear great preaching, but they're missing what is so vital. The Lord is here with these people. Granted, the Lord is in each individual, but it multiplies. We never talk about the individual when we're talking about being in Christ. We emphasize the whole of it all, not just the individual. That is being selfish, isn't it? I call it very sinful. And I know I'm I'm hard on that. um, But Now... (laughs) Now, when when somebody's sick, I just thought about it. What if somebody's just missing? He's getting at (laughs) me. What if somebody's sick or they have something, you know, they got to go somewhere or those other things? You know what I believe in that. That's fine. Um, But it's just when people continually miss fellowship. And they're missing the commitment that they are to have to fellowship with other people. And we come to receive of the same food, the same drink. Uh, There's a fellowship of love there that God has brought forth. Uh, There's a commitment. A commitment that we all have to the same life. the life of Christ. Now, keeping in this context, what I just said is also transferred over to a pagan feast. They too are in a union together. They all share... And whether they like it or not, they'd be actively involved with each other in this pagan idolatrous worship, wouldn't they? He's saying, okay, you know when you come together, there's a unity there. Well, if you go into a pagan feast, there's a unity there with people who are idolatrous. You would be expressing your solidarity, your union, your belonging to people in that kind of worship. When we come together, we're expressing our unity here. Did you know that? When we have communion, we are really expressing it now. We're showing it in a vivid way. A visible way. It reminds us of that. So you belong to Christ. And catch this. You belong to the people. Do you know that? You don't belong to yourself, you belong to God, but you also belong to each and every one of us, and the whole rest of the body of Christ. But in the local body, you belong to other people. That's incredible. When I, when I studied and read that this, this week, and, you know, I remember the book of Ephesians and such started putting it together, I said, my, uh, this is going even further than I thought. I, you know, I know I belong to Christ, but I never really thought of myself belonging to, to Bob out there, for instance. I belong to Bob. I belong to you. eh? (laughs) Have you thought of that? That's the whole, the whole part, the body of Christ. We're so important to every other member there. I belong to you, 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 you. You You belong to me, 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 me. We belong to Christ. It's so unified. It's it's kind of stagnant when you think about it. So, why would they go to a pagan feast and suggest that they have unity with all the people there who are pagans, who are practicing in that brotherhood of pagans and worshiping their God. Now that's the point that Paul is making. Do you guys catch that? That's the whole point, that's, and I want to emphasize, because that's the context of this whole meaning. Really Paul is really bringing this out. and so that's why I'm reminding how important uh, communion is and the whole fellowship of the body of Christ is. I'm not trying to, you know, beat a, beat a horse here, but uh, it, it's really something. This, this body of Christ comes together with uh, people that are in a brotherhood, the uh, unity. Uh, it's a family tie we are more related in the body of Christ than we are related to people in our very family. If our very family is related by blood, that's even, even better, but, you know, but it extends much further. Um, can you think of a motley group, the church, full of people who are poor and some rich? How about some people who are very intelligent? Intelligent? and some not so intelligent, some sophisticated and cultured and elegant, and others are vulgar in the way that they look, (laughs) Uh, maybe ill-bred and unrefined. But they come together to the Lord's table and they are equal in God's eyes. What other kind of organization could even compare with this? And it's all over the world where people gather together and they come from different backgrounds and walks and they do different things and yet they're so unified. Unbelievable. And they come, these Corinthians came together to the Lord's table Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and He's trying to get this through their heads. Mark this. Check this out. Think about this one. It has to be with us today. When you come to this table, in this case here, we have two little tables put together and they're weak, but they're holding this up. <laughs> we, we, uh, I think we stole Debbie's bench there for a week or two whenever she was out and we used it. <laughs> but this is representing the Lord's table, right? Representation. When you're doing that, you're demonstrating your oneness with this congregation. I, I know that's mind-blowing but it's participating with every Christian in the body of Christ who participates in the Lord's Supper. This is the table that Christ spreads for His people who have come to acknowledge that they are desperate, that they are hungry and thirsty for Him. When we come to worship, we are desperate, every one of us. You can say, oh, some people here are are not that desperate. I mean, look at the lives they're living and and living a really solid Christian life and they don't seem so desperate. Yes, they are. We all are desperate. We all have sinned. We need His grace and mercy and love. We need His forgiveness because we battle and struggle, are tempted with sin daily. And this is the relief that we get. And it is overwhelming, isn't it? when you come to worship, do you see how important worship is? Well, He says you're acknowledging this and nowhere else but in the Son of God do you get that. Now, that's on an individual basis daily. But how important it is when we come here to feed off Him. This is the table that He spreads for all the brothers and sisters and for those who are by faith in Him have become the children of God All of the ones that have this faith are there in common. And they're holding these realities that are mighty. They're holding them in common. What possible difference could ever drive us apart? Some people, they see the way that people are dressed, or the way that they look, or some different nationality, a different language. Different status, a different education, income, background, race, class, whatever. They see that and see that as differences and there's always these walls. And the moment we come in Christ, those walls are broken down and it's the person of Christ who breaks it. The family of God. So our participation in the Lord's Supper, our worship in His people has vast implications. Robert Rayburn says, it has vast implications for the practice of our fellowship and our unity in love with one another. I think that was well said by him. He says, what this implies, this is what's implying to the Corinthians. And they, already, they didn't have to be told how important it was. He brings it out though. Now he reminds them that it's communion of the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. Now, it's a symbol. We know the blood in itself is not some kind of thing to be worshipped. You could could have taken Christ and put a pin in Him and pricked Him and got the blood out of there and then, uh, hey, that's the magic potion and He doesn't have to die on the cross. That's not the idea. The idea is that there had to be a violent death. That uh, blood was shed. Uh, but, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the symbol of the blood of Christ? Uh, well, it's more than the symbol. It's more than that. It's this communion, if you will. In the Greek, it's participation in the blood. or particip- It's sharing in the blood. It's, there's an actual involvement here in taking place with that cup. Nothing there in the element whatsoever is magical. But there's a spiritual reality going on there that's more than just a symbol. It's who Christ is and who we take. We're, we're, we're fellowshipping with Him. Uh, in Leviticus 17.11, I think, uh, is the life of the flesh is in the blood. That's where we get our life. It's already happened. When we do something, we're remembering, as Jesus said. Do this often. As you do this, remember me. It's a remembrance. It's a memorial. It's a symbol. But we see that it's even more than that. When you have a picture of somebody, and let's say it's somebody that you love, and you haven't seen them for a while, or it might be somebody that has died, but they were really important to you in your life, as soon as you look at that picture, the whole of that person is actualized. It's just an image. There is nothing in that piece of paper that is them, but what happens when you look at that picture? It becomes actualized. It reminds you of who they were as a whole person. Everything about that person all of a sudden can become alive to you, right? I look at pictures of people, uh, you know, and all of a sudden my mind is flooded with some realities of who they were and how important they were to me. It's actualized. Communion is the same thing. These are just pictures, but it actually brings an, an, a, a, a vivid picture. Where it makes it real to you. That's the idea. It really hits you in the head of what he really did. It really brings that to your mind. How about sensitivity? Maybe that's what we're looking at here. It it brings the hairs of the sensitivity alive when we are part of this communion. Does that make sense? You guys following this? That's why it's so important. Uh, uh, So, it's a symbol, but it's activated by the Spirit of God. To make Christ's death even more vivid or a reality to us. Yeah, I know factually He died on the cross. But when you really think about that blood being shed for you to take away your sins, it's incredible. That's the idea of communion. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? They knew that. And then He says, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? So we go into that for a moment. We've seen the blood... That violent death that had to happen to Christ on the cross. And now we see the body of Christ. Jesus used these two as pictures for us to continue on throughout our days as we live here on the earth in the church. The body of Christ is His, his earthiness, His humanness, His body that He took on. The incarnation. His death was for mankind. He had to be like man. We are humans. And there's the significance of the body there. When a, a Jew thought of the body, he thought of the humanness or the earthiness, uh, man's connection to the ground, to his humanness. Look in Philippians 2.7. I think we did this uh, I think during Christmas, right? Did this message out of Philippians 2.7, the epitome of Humility. For Christ made Himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. He took on a body. A real body. And so He says here in Corinthians, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? We're communing around this bread that is broken. Uh, We know that His flesh or His body was not actually broken. We know there are no bones broken. The prophecy said that. Uh, What it's talking about here is um, he took the loaf when they were at the Passover, he took it and broke it so it could be spread around to the disciples there. We're all partakers of one bread. And that loaf, he took it and they all partook of that. Uh, It's to be passed out. In That sense, all partake. The symbolism is not only in distribution, not in His death. His body was never broken. But it's also dealing with His humanness. So it celebrates His death and also celebrates His life and His body that was actually here. And so the bread is communing with the very body of Christ. It's not the body of Christ as we'll get into in a moment. Um, uh, Another significant aspect of this is we saw that it's participation with God's people, but it's also participation with who? Which is even more important. Christ. These two go together. In 1 Corinthians 6.17, Paul has already mentioned this. But he who is joined to the Lord is one Spirit with Him. And then you think of the New Testament. How many times does it say, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ? We're in one Spirit with Him. I can't see that. I can't feel it. I have to take it by faith. But somehow, we are placed into Christ. When we take communion, we mentally recognize that we are identified with Christ. We know that. Uh, but now there's a real union between the worshippers and the one who is being worshipped. Right? To go hand in hand. Uh, when you take the cup, you take the bread, you're communing with Christ in a real way. The bread reminds us of life. The cup reminds us of His death. And this loaf is broken for us. Actual communion. Participating, partaking, communion. What does that mean to the Corinthian church member, this is how important it is. Why are you going up to that temple over there and doing that when you know better? Now, This is all actualized. This is what happens when we uh, take a communion. It's a sensitivity to us being reminded, okay, now we've got to get into this just for a moment. And Some of us here came from the Catholic Church matter of fact, one of the first things that bothers one sometimes is communion. Because they know what it was before and until they learn what this is, now they even have trouble taking that. And I can understand because it is a mass confusion. The Roman Catholic Church has a total different meaning. It's not anywhere close. Not whatsoever. It's a real sacrifice. The priest according to them, is able to turn the uh, the the wine into actual blood and the bread, the host, into the very person, the very body of Christ. Somehow, magically, they expect millions of people to believe that. And you know what? They do. How can you be so gullible to believe that? Well, When they put the blinders over you, you can believe about anything. And that's what the Catholic Church has done in many different areas, but especially in this. This is the very heart of their worship. This is everything. This is why you have to go to Mass to receive Christ. That's how you receive Christ we've seen the biblical way. If you're a Christian, you've already received Christ. You're not receiving him and you go out and you sin during the week Then you come in. That's why it's good to take uh and go to mass and take communion every day if you can. You've heard of some Catholics who go to church every day? That's what they mean. And they go and and take that uh and so they're literally drinking the blood and eating the flesh. There is literally a sacrifice that has happened. That's their doctrine, their dogma. So you receive Christ in that way. You redistribute, you crucify Him and redistribute His body and His blood. You distribute His blood and His flesh. Do you know they think this? Essentially it means this. Theologically they're saying this. For by grace you are saved through the mouth. That's how you get Christ. That is overwhelming. That to me is high treason against our Lord. That is offensive to me, and I will not refrain to say that. And how others, even Protestants, can say, well, you know, um, they really mean it that they're uh, communing with God. They're in communion. But that's not what it's saying. And their doctrine and their dogmas say that. When Martin Luther then came along, he didn't like that very well because he just couldn't see how that idea could be. That it could actually turn in, those elements could actually turn in to the very flesh and blood of Christ. So rather than being transubstantiation, he came up with consubstantiation. And what he said before about what the Catholic Church was, he was correct. But where he was in error, and I think in very much error, and it's very close to what the Catholic Church said, he couldn't just break off from that. Matter of fact, this is what separated him and the Lutherans that we know from the rest of the Reformation. And this is at the heart. And I think this is very key. Martin Luther backed off a little bit, and you know, I, I thank the Lord for Martin Luther. And I'm not trying to rip into Martin Luther, but here's what he believed, and he he would he would fight for it. He says the actual blood and the body is actually around and under, over the communion elements. It's not in there, so you're not really taking him there. But you are. He is there. Somehow, physically, he is there around this table. When you partake of the elements in a consubstantiation type view, you're actually taking the wine and the bread, but but you're not really taking in Christ in that way. But sort of spiritually speaking comes the actual presence of Christ. I cannot believe that whatsoever. Christ has not come back yet. We look for His second coming. He is in heaven at the right hand of God. He does not come back to this earth until that happens. Um, so, I, I don't know how a Lutheran—and I'm not trying to blast Lutherans—but I don't know how they can defend that. And I've asked them; uh, they'll try to explain it when it really comes down to it. They say you just have—it's a mystery. And I know there is some mystery behind this. It's almost like it's mystical, though, that the actual. Jesus Christ is here. You just can't see Him. Well, we know that Christ is here, but He's here residing in us, residing in the church. He's not there in a physical way. And that's basically what Luther's saying. He's there in a physical way, only He's invisible. And I, I, how do you define that? How do you describe that? I would have trouble defending it. And I don't think it is what... Uh, Jesus is saying this is my body and that's what Luther swore upon this is my body Eston. and he had people rally around that. and so he stood up against a lot of the other ones who went the other way and that was the division of the Lutherans and the rest of the reformers kind of fascinating we still have that uh, break today Communion and baptism seem to be the the two biggest reasons why the body of Christ, especially people who uh, have been Reformed and part of the Protestant Reformation, have divided. Are you amazed? God left us two ordinances uh, and how they divide. Well, I don't think it's any of those two ways that that works at all. The Catholic and the Lutheran way. Um, The fact that these elements are only symbols of His life and death. We partake of these elements being sensitive or letting the sensitivity of us being uh, be struck by the Holy Spirit. Our little spiritual sense fibers that we have are turned on. We become alive to the fact that Christ is a reality to us in every Way. It's a sensitizer. It's like a divine appetizer. It kicks it into gear. That's the idea. Does that make sense? It hits us and awakes us to these truths. Um, maybe like a spiritual alarm clock goes off. Oh, wow. Has that ever happened? When you've been involved in communion? Well, we move on. We have to move on quickly now. That's pretty well the heart of this today, but... Um, Verse 17 sums it up. For with thee, though many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. I think that's very convicting to the Corinthians. Now ready. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partake of the altar? He says, even before there was the churches, we know it. Even going back to the Old Testament, what did the Jews do? Well, they practiced a sacrifice. And that sacrifice was a participation with not only God, but the people. Of course, the priest identified with God and brought them together and now they were identifying with God and with the people who all partook of that. So he says, even in the Old Testament we see it. We see it now in the New Testament in its fulfillment. So he reached all the way back. He says they shared in the sacrifices of a somewhat similar way. So when you go to an idol festival and you eat that idol offering, Corinthians, of that drink and that meat, You are fellowshipping with those idol worshipers. You are identifying with that idol whether you like it or not. And you're saying, no, 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 no. I'm just taking it. It doesn't mean anything. We already know that. I'm just going to take it uh, because I'm with my relatives here and don't want to offend them. So he's saying, so you're communing with Christ and His people. At the next turn, you're communicating and communing with idols. And what he does now, he turns it over, turns the table over, puts them to actually demonic worship. What am I saying then? That an idol is anything, what's offered to idols is anything? He's he's already made that clear. Not that in itself is is some kind of an idol. There is no such a, there's no other gods, is what he's saying. There's no other gods. I know that. Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship, partnership, communion with demons. Wow, Paul, aren't you carrying this a little too far? No. He's already stated how important the Lord's Supper is and he's saying you cannot mix that with anything else. How does that work with us? We don't want to mix anything that would be idolatry or something that would not consist of what truth is with what God's truth is, right? And so Paul uh, brings that argument to them. A demon can impersonate a god. There are no other gods but God. But they can impersonate gods and bring on some kind of miraculous work. And when they bring on some kind of miraculous work, some kind of something that's happened within that Group of people and they witness it, then it stands out even more and it must be right, right? If this has happened, I've seen this. but well, we know in Second Thessalonians chapter two nine through eleven, So I'll turn there real quick, that there is such a thing as we know about the angel of light, right? An angel of light you can turn you can turn into Second Thessalonians two verse. 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Here it's talking about the working of Satan. Power, signs, lying wonders that can be very deceptive that... Really is not from God, but people can think it's from God. And we know in another passage the angel can turn into an angel of light, but not really from God. And we know that we cannot serve two masters. Mammon, right? You have God, or you serve mammon or things or whatever. There's only one God anyway. But people can tend to follow something after, even though it's false because of what demons have done or the way that it's been brought up, it looks so real. A Christian goes to feast and participates. He's identifying with other idolaters and the one being worshipped. And he sums it up then about God being a very jealous God. He says, uh, 22, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? When we take on an idol, take that into our life, we are now putting uh, that idol on a level with with Jesus. He says God is jealous. He's a jealous God. He does not have any other... There are no other gods. And He will not have us having other gods. And and He says here, are we stronger than He? <laughs> Obviously, we know what that means, right? You ready to take on God? Ready to take Him on and, and flash that fist up there? And <laughs> The only way that I'd ever want to make God jealous... And get upset with me would be if I was tougher than him, that is ridiculous. I cannot take him on. I don't want to get him irritated at me, however, that's kind of what he's saying he He judges idol worshipers and you can't escape if you're into some kind of idolatry. If you're a Christian, you don't worship idols. So what's the Lord's Supper for? And this is where we're going to go right into our communion here and I won't have to teach any more about it. We'll just go into... I think John Knox put it this way. By the sacrament, my faith is nourished. And so when I had but a little grip of Christ before, as it were betwixt my finger and thumb, now I get Him in my whole hand. For the more my faith grows, the better grip I have on Christ Jesus. The more we know Him, the better grip that we have rather than just barely holding on. That's why we have these pictures. We want to have a a grip on Christ. Look around as we focus on Christ and His table today. Look around as you come to that table, as you're participating in that table of the Lord, and remember that this sacrament or this ordinance is a powerful witness to your brotherhood. It's a powerful witness to other believers. And so we don't just simply confess, but we love and cherish and we show this in our act. It's a real cost sometimes, but we come to the Lord's Supper to seek to love Christ even more and to have that grasp of the reality that runs in deep to the very bottoms of our heart that we're loyal to the Lord and we are seeking to love our brothers and sisters. Let's pray.